Hello and welcome. My name's Karen O'Connor and this is Things That Make You Go Hmm. This is your podcast to help you make the most of the wisdom and experience that comes with getting that little bit older. Let's get right into it. Hello and welcome. Today I'm here with Donna Aston. Welcome, Donna. Thank you for having me. You are so welcome. I'm looking forward to this. You're a nutritionist and performance coach, and you're the director of AstonRx.com, which is a metabolic health and fat loss uh, platform. Is that right? Indeed, it is. Yes, absolutely. And you specialize in working with people or women around menopause. Yes, it is one of my specialties, um, speaking from personal experience as well as professional. So, yes, it is It is um, a group of, of people that I commonly work with and have great success with. So was it your own experiences that got you into this? Um, I think that's really helped um, my approach, uh, having been through that myself. But, I mean, I've always worked in this industry. You know, it's been, it's been 35 or years or so that I've actually been working in health and fitness and nutrition. Um, But I think going through menopause myself has certainly helped. How did it change what you can eat and how you exercise? What impact did it have on you? Because somebody who's so present in their body, you must have really noticed the minute changes. To be honest, not really. All of it meant for me is that I I had to be more diligent with everything. So, you know, naturally our body will lose four to eight percent of our lean muscle tissue every decade after the age of 35. And when you get to 50, it starts to accelerate at an even faster rate if you don't do any exercise. And so if you start losing this valuable lean muscle, we all know about losing bone and we all know about bone density and trying to keep our bones strong, particularly post-menopause. But a lot of people are not as aware of the amount of muscle that we lose, and that's our metabolic engine. And so it's like going from a a big V8 engine down to a little four-cylinder. You you don't use as many calories. So, And then you end up with joint pain because your muscles are no longer supporting your joints. Um, You end up with a slower metabolic rate, so you start gaining body fat. So all of these things are cumulative but avoidable. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I've noticed I used to be a swimmer and I used to, I couldn't wear singlets, um, what do they call them in the rest of the world, crop tops, you know, sort of yeah. sleepless things, because I looked like an all-in wrestler, you know, I had these <laughs> massive shoulders. But over yeah. the years, they've gone and, and I yes. do exercise, but it's really interesting that it is difficult. My my dad recently had uh, a heart problem and he's very, very fit. He's 84, but he still runs five miles a day and does his exercises and all that. But he struggles because he it's so difficult to put the muscle back on once you start aging, isn't it? So it's not just that you're losing it. It's really mm-hmm. difficult to maintain it and regain it. Absolutely. I mean, you have muscle memory. So if you've had muscle before and you've lost it, you'll get back to where you were before a lot quicker than someone who's never had that muscle in the first place. So we do have that muscle memory, plus whatever we did in the past to gain that muscle, in your case it was swimming, you still have that skill uh, more than anybody else would to be able to gain that muscle back. It also comes down to diet. Our body doesn't process protein as well as it did when we were younger, so we need to eat more of it. 
Um, you know, and a lot of people now are, are probably eating less protein because we're told that, you know, particularly meat and things are not so good for us. So we think we're doing the right thing by reducing those things that actually repair and build our muscle tissue. Now, I didn't know that because, yeah, everything is about, you know, reduce the amount of meat that you eat, reduce the amount of protein, eat more fruit and veg. I struggle to eat fruit, for example. It's just too high in carbs for me. I am starving as soon as I've finished it. (laughs) Yeah, I agree with you. Some people are more sensitive to that than others, and I'm one of those people as well. I mean, I used to be 25 kilos heavier than I am when I was young. So I know what it's like to be overweight. I know what it's like to lose weight. I'm not one of those people who was born thin and, you know, has just been fit all my life. I've I've had many transitions through my life, and, um, you know, I know what it's like to, to have to lose weight. So as you're going through menopause, what would be – a diet for people. And I hate to say what is the perfect diet because we're all so different. And it's about trying things on until you find something that works for you, isn't it? So what would be your suggestions for what people could try? Well, look, a lot of the things that happen to our body, a lot of the negative things that, that we notice through menopause, things like the old muffin top, the the band of fat around the middle that we may have never had before, those types of things, but they all coincide with other things that are going on on the inside with our metabolism. One of them, as I mentioned, the muscle loss. The other one then is a bit of insulin resistance. Our liver's not functioning as well as it should. We start gaining that visceral fat, which is dangerous around the middle, causes inflammation. All of these things are going on. So The best thing you can do for your metabolism is three meals a day, no snacking, nothing in between, at least five hours between meals and have a portion of protein and loads of fibrous plant food, colourful, diverse range of plant food with every meal and keep it as simple as that. And breakfast, breakfast is often, I was just eating breakfast before we got on and that for me is always the hardest meal and quite often I'll eat leftovers from the night before because it's Mm. too difficult or a sandwich is the other one and I use keto bread there's a really nice keto bread we can get in Australia because it's got higher protein and my body doesn't Mm. like gluten so yeah breakfast is the hardest thing (laughs) then don't eat it I mean, if you want to, if you want to, I have two meals every day because for me, it just works. I'm up at five. I don't want to eat at five. Um, and I don't really have the opportunity to eat because I'm at work. So the first time I really feel like eating would probably be around 10 in the morning where I have brunch. That's my first meal. And then the second meal I have would be an early dinner, probably around five or six o'clock. And, what and, and that, that's have- it. What do you have for brekkie or brunch? Because it's usually or brunch, usually some form of eggs, for example. I usually try to aim for savoury because I find I get a lower glucose and insulin response so it doesn't impact my hunger. I feel much more satisfied with that meal. If I had something sweeter tasting, I find that I'm hungry really quickly. So it would be some form of eggs, really simple, uh, with some greens and avocado or something along those lines. Um, The only other option, I'd have would maybe be like a plain Greek yogurt with some blueberries um, and some like raw nuts and seeds, that type of thing. So a lot of this is about keeping the carbs down as well, isn't it? Yeah, no, there's no requirement 
for processed refined carbohydrates. You know, as long as you're having your veggies, which are full of fibre and carbohydrates, the fibrous veggies that are full of colour and a diverse range of them are great for your gut health. So they feed all the good bacteria in your gut. They help to keep your digestion moving as it should. um, And they're full of nourishment, full of great nutrients. When you start working with somebody, and I've got to say here, right, and this is off the rock and delete this, you are so good at answering questions. There's actually not many places <laughs> Tommy left to go. So you go, okay, I've got to, to change the topic now, <laughs> which is fabulous. Like, I'm, I, it's not a criticism. It's, it's absolutely brilliant. Oh, I love this topic. <laughs> <laughs> so when somebody starts, if somebody came to you, so you, you don't just do nutrition, do you? You do fitness too. I, I give advice on fitness. I no longer physically teach like I used to, but I give advice on fitness and I have trainers that work under my umbrella that I can refer people to. And also as part of Aston RX, we do we have on-demand fitness as part of that as well. So what is Aston RX? I read that it was a platform before. I yeah. haven't read any, done any background reading about that. I was reading about your apartment in Melbourne on real estate. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Pepper, Aston RX. <laughs> so Aston RX, it is an online platform. I developed it because I, I was actually going to write another book when I started looking more into this insulin glucose response and, and metabolic syndrome and, and so many areas around losing fat. And and I, I, I've published six books and I thought, oh, here comes number seven. And so that's what I was thinking at the time. But then I realised it really, it's ever-changing. It needs more support and guidance. It needs to be interactive. And I really need to take people by the hand and, and teach them how to look after their body. So it's kind of like the instruction manual that you didn't get when you were given charge of this body. And so I drip feed information and education throughout a 28-day program. People will normally lose about 10% of their body weight doing the 28 days. And then I I teach them how to maintain that long-term. And I, I kind of trick people into getting healthy. So for me, it's more about Um, improving your metabolic health and then once we do that the fat loss is kind of a side effect because once everything's functioning as it should the fat gain was just a symptom of something going wrong and your body crying out for you to change something so we figure out what that is and we teach you how to change it and then maintain it long term and typically what age group comes into the is it a, at all age ranges have you got kind of different advice for different age ranges um it, look all programs are, are customized for each person based on a health profile test as well as blood testing that we do prior to them starting so it is customized but it's anybody who wants to improve their health metabolic health gut health and weight um, and learn how to do it for the long term. So, you know, our, our youngest is we sometimes get, you know, a mum and daughter or a father and daughter doing the program together or something like that, right through to, you know, somebody who's elderly. So male and female um, works beautifully for men. A lot of women tend to rope their husbands into it so that they're, you know, the husband's not sitting there having something they can't. <laughs> and um, and it works really well to have that support network around you as well. So your food intake requirements change as you get older and you're but also the kind of activities that you can do 
that are beneficial also changes as you get older too, doesn't it? Yeah, look, I mean, I I would never be able to. I have a back injury and my knees wouldn't like to run. I think impact, unless it's something you've always done, you know, some people are just born runners and they've always done it and that's fine. Um, if I started trying to run now, I, I'd probably be crippled. Um, so there are certain impact things that our joints start to wear, um, our discs in our back start to wear, you know, things are not functioning as well as they once did. Um, so I think the most important thing is just to move any way you like. And that needs to be something you enjoy. It might be, um, you know, something like going for a walk in the park, having a hit of tennis with a friend. Any of those things are great, any activity, but strength training, something using your strength, whether it be in a gym or at home, is so important. I started Reformer Pilates about two years ago now, and that's been a godsend for me because I find it more interesting than just getting on the weights machines. Yes. Um, but it's I used to do synchronised swimming as well, so it's the closest thing to synchro because it's all about the core. Yeah, and it makes you really focus on, on your muscles and it gets your mind-body connection happening, I think, a lot better than a lot of other activities. Yeah, because if you just sat on a machine doing the, you know, the chest press or the shoulder press or the squats, mm. you, it's a bit different, isn't it? Because you're just thinking about those muscles that you're using. Yes. Yeah, I I, I love Pilates. I think reformers are great. Um, you know, as long as it's got some some good resistance on it and, you know, it's advanced enough for you to be really, you know, recruiting those muscle fibres and making them work. What do you mean advanced enough? Well, some Pilates is just purely re rehab, you know, after an injury or something along those lines. So it's literally, you've probably seen people lying on a reformer bed, floating around, really not doing much at all. And commonly classes are a little bit like that. But as you become more advanced and you have good instruction, then obviously it becomes a bit more challenging. So it has to always be challenging for your muscles. Muscles are like building muscle is like a scarring process. You know, it, it will it will tear, cause little micro tears in the muscle when you train so that next time it will repair stronger so that it's ready for the next bout of training that you give it. If you never allow that to happen, then the process doesn't work. Right, okay. I like to eat well. I like to eat stuff that makes me feel good. And I can't, for example, eat a McDonald's because I feel immediately crap, no matter how nice it tastes mm -hmm. at the time. Two seconds later, I'm like, oh, I wish I hadn't eaten that. How do you move people beyond that? It's funny, you know, I often say to people, you don't know how bad you feel until you start feeling better. Like, I don't know how you feel and you don't know how I feel. Um, but I, I know that the finer tuned your body is, the more you'll notice those things. See, people think that that I really want to eat bad food, but I don't because I have this great willpower. It's got nothing to do with it. I don't want it. I, it, I, might, as well, I might as well have a bottle of vodka as eat junk food because I would feel like I have the worst hangover on earth and I'm too busy I don't you know I've got too many things to do I don't want to feel that way so I have no desire for it and I also think that your palate changes enormously it's like if you know if I made you a cup of coffee and I put five teaspoons of sugar in it you'd spit it out and say that's awful because your palate's not used to it some people have that every day 
and they think that's normal. So, it, it, you know, your palate will change according to what you feed it. I, I think a carrot tastes sweet because I don't have sugar. Yeah, me too. I'm just, I can't eat carrots. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I've never had a sweet tooth. And so I find it difficult to understand why people want the sweet stuff because it just makes, it gives me a headache for a start. There's a few reasons. I mean, there are a lot of biological reasons for our behaviour around food. And I think they're not understood and commonly discounted. And we blame it on lack of willpower or some other issue that we seem to have as our terrible personality flaw where we can't avoid having these things, when in fact, often that biology will drive behaviour. So for example, when you eat a lot of sugar, you get a big rush of insulin, which is trying to store that because it's in excess. When you have high levels of insulin, your fat cells are sucking too much energy out of your bloodstream to absorb into your fat cells, and it leaves you the rest of your cells with no energy. So you're constantly craving more sugar because you've got none left for the rest of your body to function. Then we've got our gut flora. So the nasty opportunistic bacteria that live in our gut love sugar. They will overgrow and dominate your gut environment when you eat too much sugar and they need to be fed all the time. And we know that our gut communicates with our brain all day long. And so you're basically being told to eat sugar by your gut bacteria. So there's a lot of these things that are going on on the inside that we don't understand and then we kick ourselves in the head for having no willpower when it's got nothing to do with it. So uh, as well as changing your diet, is there something else we can do to help stop those cravings? Because it's got to be, is it all about willpower? Because I know people who have sweet teeth and I'm talking about people I know here will tell me that they can't do it because they don't have the willpower. It takes a few days of will. I mean, of course, you know, to change anything, you have to give something up. You have to make a change and make a decision to do that. So there's probably a few days where you'll have cravings, but if you can push through that and come out the other side, they're gone. It doesn't really doesn't take your body long because it's actually how your body prefers to function. And so the, the cravings are only there because of what you're putting into your system. The other thing is that sugar, sugar activates the same centres in our brain as cocaine, the reward centre, and activates dopamine, which is our, our, you know, the hormone, the reward system that we have. And there's supposed to be a balance between dopamine and serotonin. Serotonin is our, our feel-good hormone. And serotonin, they need to be in balance, these two things. And often when they're out of balance, we do have mental health issues. And 80% of our serotonin is manufactured by the good bacteria in our gut. So if your gut's unhealthy, your serotonin's low, your dopamine will be dominant. You're always after the reward. And then we get, we become almost immune to it. So you need more sugar to get your dopamine going, just like a drug. You know, you need more of it to get the same high. And so this system is also in play in the background. So it's really nothing to do with willpower. Willpower is suggesting that you have some control over it. You don't. And so you need to understand the system. You need to put things in place for that to reverse. And then you find your body responds accordingly. So it really is an addiction. Absolutely. Which puts a whole different perspective on it. So when yes. you know, people go on a diet 
And I've often said to to people who are close to me who, you know, and I've said, try eating better. You eat too much sugar. Um, And it's about changing your lifestyle, you know, because people say to me, well, I feel deprived. I feel like I'm depriving myself. There's also a bit of that self-talk that goes on. You know, we can tell ourselves all sorts of stories to justify just about any behaviour if we really want to. But I think the first step is just accepting that you need to change something for the sake of your health. I mean, one meal like that can start to alter the bacteria that live in your gut. You know, it's it's it has a profound impact on our health and, um, you know, it's, I'm not saying we need to be perfect, but people need to really start to review their diet, particularly if, you know, their cholesterol's going up, their blood pressure's going up, they're gaining weight, they've got joint pain. All of these things we tend to accept as a, a normal part of ageing, very common, not normal. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, very common and not normal, and we do consider it to be normal. All, all your friends will tell you the same story. So we all say, oh, well, this must be what happens to me now that I'm over 50 or now that I'm this age. This is what all my friends are experiencing. So therefore, you know, I just have, this is my destiny. It's not true. So putting on weight as you get older, that's not, that's a fact. You, you should get lighter as you get older because you have less bone density and less muscle. So you should get lighter and lighter and lighter as you get older. The amount of people that say to me, oh, you know, I used to be 60 kilos when I was a teenager, but but now that I'm 50, I think 70 is okay. No, you should be less than you were when you were a teenager because you had more muscle and more bone density. And would you be the same size but just lighter? Is that right? I if, think you're losing, if you're losing muscle and gaining fat, you may even stay the same weight, but your body composition changes mm. and you become far less healthy because you've got more fat and you've got less metabolically active muscle tissue. I was really mortified a couple of years ago when my personal trainer told me that my BMI is close to being overweight because as you get older, your BMI, the, your ideal BMI actually decreases. It doesn't increase, it decreases, doesn't it? I was horrified. <laughs> your BMI is really a calculation for your height and your weight. So if you were a football player and had a lot of muscle tissue, you'd be obese on that scale, which clearly is not the case. So it's really the BMI is not as important as your body fat percentage. So if you have a gym or somewhere who can measure your actual body fat percentage and tell you what your lean muscle tissue is and and what your body fat is, it's good to do it even once a year just to make sure that you're not losing any lean tissue and that the exercise and diet you have is working. Yeah, and, and that's the other thing about one thing I find, depending on my um, level of exercise, it, uh, an aerobic exercise as well, sometimes I need carbs. Like I'm, I don't eat sugars, but it'll be I need rice right now. <laughs> Nobody needs rice anytime. You can tell yourself that and you can eat it, but there's no requirement for it from a nutrition point of view. We all have about 200,000 calories of fat sitting on our body waiting for us to burn. The only reason we put it there is in case of a famine, but there's no more famine. There's only feast. And so it sits there 
and we think we're reliant on our next meal when we have 200,000 plus calories sitting in the reserve tank, just waiting for us to use it. Is that is that the average? Or... Yeah, that's the average. And if someone's wow. very overweight, it's probably double or triple that. Wow. Yeah. So I have a, an ultra marathon runner that I work with, and he now does a 100K run on nothing but water and electrolytes. Because even though he's built like a string bean as a marathon runner, he still has 66,000 calories in fat on his body. And if he runs for an hour, he burns 1,000. He's never going to run. He can't run that long. Be running for days to be able to run out of body fat. And that's a marathon runner. Imagine the rest of us who can't even walk from between breakfast and lunch around the corner without having a snack. (laughs) We read somewhere the other day that they did a, a study in America recently and the average person can't go more than 45 minutes without eating something. Yeah. I mean, we sleep for eight hours a night. We don't starve to death in our sleep. We're okay. And so, you know, everyone, if you're reliant on glucose, we have two sources of fuel we can use, glucose or our stored fat. And if you continue eating on a very regular basis, that choice will be glucose always. If you stop and just have your three meals and allow fasting, at least 12 hours fasting every 24 hours, at least, then you'll be able to access your stored fat. Does that rule about not eating within an hour of exercising or an hour before exercising? Because otherwise you burn up the calories that you've eaten as opposed to the calories that you've put into your body. It's not so much that. It's just that it takes a lot of energy and blood flow to digest food and it takes four to five hours to digest a meal. So if you eat a meal and your body is trying to work hard and digest it and then you decide to divert all of that blood flow and energy to your arms and legs to do some exercise, your digestion just stagnates and the food sits in your belly and you feel quite nauseous because of it, that's really the only reason not to eat just before exercise. Right. What? Tell me what else is there that you want people to know? There's got to be something really important that you want to say to people. The thing that is stopping you from losing weight or making you store excess fat is insulin. And you can measure it in a blood test. And high insulin is going to make you store fat. It's going to push up your cholesterol. It's going to push up your blood pressure. It's going to get you having more visceral fat around your middle. It will increase inflammation and will make you get old really fast. So the thing that pushes up insulin is refined carbohydrates and sugar and eating too frequently, eating too much eating, you know, at at all the wrong times of the day. So it's really important to keep your insulin low to allow your body to function as it needs to. What are the wrong times of day to eat? We have a circadian rhythm, which is a 24-hour body clock, and it's set by light in our retina, in our eyes. And so, for example, by the time it starts to get dark, our body assumes there's no more hunting and gathering. And so it will start to reduce our temperature, which is necessary for us to go to sleep. It will start to produce melatonin to help us everything we need to go to sleep. And then we dump dinner on it at some time after dark. And it's not prepared for food. No enzymes to digest it, nothing. So you'll get a 50 to 70% higher insulin response to that meal compared to eating it you know, an hour or so earlier. So eating after dark 
has an enormous impact on your weight and the way you process that food. And it will also interfere with your sleep because you're not able to do all of that preparation for sleep. Poor sleep, they've done studies where they deprive people just one hour of sleep and they wake up and eat 40% more food the next day. Um, it, it is a very stressful state to be in, sleep deprived. And, you know, that pushes up cortisol, which pushes up insulin, which makes you store fat, and it just keeps going around in a circle. So talk to me about your, because I was just reading then about your 28-day program, and because it's going to be really difficult (laughs) for people to just log in and then follow a 28-day thing, but you have support there for it, don't you? Absolutely. I mean, a a huge part of this is education and support. And I don't expect anybody to do this on their own. They can certainly do it from home, which is great. You don't have to go to any intimidating appointments or, you know, front up in your gym gear and feel uncomfortable. You you can do everything from home, which is great. Um, But you have my whole team and I to support you throughout. And I think that's the most valuable thing is the education, which is going to give you the skills for a lifetime. And also the team help, you know, there's always little differences with people. They're taking different medication. They they work shift work. You know, there's there's always things that go on. They're, they're restricted for some other reason with their diet intake. You know, there's sensitivities that they have to certain foods that they can't eat. And so we're always tweaking and changing things for people to keep it moving for them. So when they start the program, you do an initial blood test, and I'm assuming you just go down to the pathology to do that. Yep. We we, we send you a script and then you can take that down to your nearest pathology. And what are you looking for in those blood tests? We're looking at metabolic function. So we look at things like your um, insulin and glucose control. We look at uh, liver function. We look at your cholesterol, so your your triglycerides, the fats floating around in your bloodstream, the HDL protective cholesterol, the LDL not so good cholesterol. We look at vitamin D. A lot of people are very deficient in vitamin D and that has an impact on your health and your weight and your iron. And so we look at all of these levels and then we we decipher a program for you that's going to be most appropriate. If you're low in vitamin D, we'll recommend a supplement for that. And then your program starts and we correct all of those things. Um, And then we have a blood test at the end of it to see how that changed as well as everything else. But it's funny, the catalyst for people doing the program is always weight loss because it's, I always call it the tip of the iceberg. It's the thing you can see. You know, there's a lot going on on the inside, but the thing you know about and the thing that you see and you don't like is extra weight or your clothes aren't fitting properly. You can't see your liver. You can't see your cholesterol. You can't see all these other things that are going on underneath. The symptom is the tip of the iceberg, which is your weight. What we focus on is everything below the waterline. So everything under that iceberg that's actually causing that tip of the iceberg to be gaining weight And then once we correct all of that and you learn why we're doing that and how we're doing that, then the light bulb goes on. By about week three, people just get it. You know, it's yes, 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 I'm losing weight, but guess what? I I don't have reflux anymore and I sleep like a baby and I wake up before my alarm and all of these things that they didn't expect to change. My joints don't hurt anymore. Like I just thought I was old. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, all of these things that people tell me on a daily basis, that's what I love to hear because they get it. 
And it's interesting because if you go to the doctor, all of your bloods might have come back within normal. So you might be perceived as, you know, you've had your annual checkup and there's nothing wrong. And normal is interesting because the blood test reference ranges are done on the average population, which are pretty unwell people generally. And so, you know, if you look at something, for example, you look at iron uh, or ferritin, which is our stored iron, and the range might be 30 to 500. And you may have started off at 500 and then the next year it was 400 and now it's 200 and then the next, and then it's 100. Nobody's watching that trend. As long as it's in that range, the doctor will basically look at that and say, you're fine, or we'll call you if something's out of range and you never hear, so you think, oh, I must be fine then. But nobody explains the blood test. Nobody watches the trend. So I teach you all about your blood test and what every single marker means so that next time you go to the doctor, you have a lot of questions and you'll get a lot of answers. I think that's it, isn't it? Because we don't know what to ask. We don't know what to look for. And often people think a blood test is a blood test is a blood test. They only test select things. And when you go to the doctor, you have to tick a criteria box to qualify for Medicare to pay for your blood test. And doctors are audited on this. So they can't just test stuff to see how your health's going. You have to be sick. Do you have a history of diabetes? Do you have a history of heart disease? Do you have pain somewhere? Do you have symptoms of this? Yes, you qualify for me to test that. So we just test everything. (laughs) You know, whether you're well or not well, we just look at the lot and it's amazing what we find. We find many people who are type 2 diabetics that had no idea. I had a 73-year-old lady who had extremely low iron and ferritin and her doctor had said she was fine and I said, that's not fine, go to another doctor and she did and she found out she had a bleeding ulcer. And that's why her iron was so low. So you've got to, you have to, if you know something's not right with your body, you need to look into it. And I think we all need to take charge of our own health. And if you're not satisfied with an answer from somebody, go and ask somebody else. On a kind of similar note, but totally different, when you're in perimenopause, you quite often get really heavy bleeding. And I'm talking about this as a personal experience and a friend is going through it right now and we both had experiences of going to the doctors I had scans and everything and everybody said I was fine my iron levels were fine everything was fine but I was literally incapacitated for a good week and a half out of every month because I couldn't move without massive blood loss and my friend is the same but that has to have an impact on your whole body system and the doctors will say no you're fine it's perimenopause you'll be all right in a few years (laughs) a few years don't worry about it yeah (laughs) great isn't it look it's things like iron loss or blood loss is you know results in iron loss it's very hard to replace that at, at that extreme level so iron carries oxygen around your blood so you'll soon find yourself breathless exhausted a suppressed immune system and just feeling absolutely awful. 
And, you know, this can result in weight gain amongst other things. So, you know, having all of those levels checked, if you have really heavy bleeding, then you should be getting your iron checked regularly to make sure that it's okay. And if it's not and you're unable to do something to stem the problem, then you have to start taking an iron supplement. They have to, that has to be fixed. You know, there's always a way of compensating if it's temporary and they know that, you know, there's an end to this. But to allow it just to dwindle down to nothing. I mean, I've had known women who have been put on antidepressants for years and it turns out they just had low iron. They weren't coping. Like they couldn't, they couldn't get out of their own way. They was they were exhausted. They were gaining weight. They didn't know what was wrong. They just couldn't, you know, that everyone thought they were depressed because they were laying in bed and couldn't move. They had no iron. How do we get to that stage where we don't pick up what is there is obviously an issue how does it get to that I feel like the the art of diagnosing a patient has gone by the wayside a lot and I I blame COVID partly for it because of they've just been overwhelmed and you know appointments are 10 minutes um, if you're lucky and things get missed and I, that's where I, I really think that it's important that we take charge of our own health, you know, along with your, your breast screening and, you know, your, you know all, all the ovarian cancer screening and everything else that we need to do on a regular basis, blood test at least once a year. I want to know the results. Can I have a copy of the, the printout, please? You know, like I, you've got to be proactive and you've got to be on managing your own health. And as I said, throughout the program, we teach you how to do that. And I, I just think it's such an important skill. It should be taught at school. It's such an important skill. Yeah, we're not really taught to take care of ourselves in any kind of way. We're taught, no. taught about external things. We're not talk, taught about our mental health and emotional health and um, emotional intelligence and communication skills and then your physical health. They kind of do, but also not. It's really important. And, you know, these are often, you know, the parents don't have those skills they were not taught. So it's very hard to pass it on to your children if you don't know yourself. And we are very reliant on the medical professional to tell us whether we're healthy or not and what we need to do. And I think even just being armed, I mean, you know, they're Obviously, it's really important to have a good doctor, but I think it's really important to understand it enough that you know what questions to ask. And, you know, if you don't feel comfortable with an answer, you have more questions or you go to somebody who can answer them. Yeah. Thank you so much, Donna. Have we covered everything you wanted to talk about? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Hopefully there were some interesting little nuggets in there. Oh, it's, yeah, it's been lovely. It's been brilliant. I really enjoy these kind of conversations because they're thought-provoking. You know, the stuff we take for granted, like you go to a doctor and they tell you your blood test results and you're okay, so you go off and you're merrily on your way, but you kind of know that you're not functioning at 100%, but then, you know, we are 59, 69, whatever, so it's okay. That's to be expected. But it's all about challenging that. I think it's important. At the end of the day, we all know our own body really well. And and I've not, like, I had a, a perfect example of a, a girlfriend of mine from years ago. She was 
40 and she had had breast cancer and she was feeling really bad and she had this persistent cough that wouldn't go away and she went to the doctor and the doctor said look you're fine and she said I don't feel fine and he said look you're fine so they did a chest x-ray they did all no you're fine everything's fine there's no tumors you're fine you don't have cancer six months later she was dead And she said to me before she died, I knew I wasn't fine, but I so wanted to believe that I was, that when he told me I was, I didn't look into it any further. But in hindsight, I knew I wasn't fine. I knew I knew I had cancer and I knew I wasn't fine. And I just, I always remember that conversation. And I always say to people, if you don't feel good and you know your body and you believe there's something going on, you need to keep looking until you find it. Because usually you're right. Wow. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. That's so sad. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was, it was incredible. And she, she, they, she ended up in hospital with pleurisy and they drained the fluid out of their lungs and said, oh, whoops, breast cancer cells in the fluid. Everyone missed it. They could have saved her if they found it four months earlier, but they all missed it. You're fine. And, you know, she knew she knew she wasn't fine, but, you know, she wanted to believe. She, she thought she was being paranoid because every time she got a sniffle, she thought she had cancer, you know. So she knew she was being really paranoid about it, so she just sort of dismissed it as, oh, I'm just being silly. She wasn't being silly. She knew. And she said to me later, I, I knew, you know, if there's one thing I regret is that I didn't push but it's very difficult to do that too, you know, because you've got to go looking for another doctor and then you've got to go through the whole same process. It's like the whole endometriosis thing where it, mm. it takes an average of six to eight years for somebody to actually get diagnosed. And that's come down from 12 to 15 years. So we're doing yeah. okay. But still, you're suffering. It's similar, similar with thyroid issues as well. Yes. Very similar. Yeah. yeah, and it's so difficult just constantly being told there's nothing wrong with you, there's nothing wrong with you. It's all in your head, you're fine, when you know you're not. Yeah. It's a difficult process, and particularly for someone like Rachel that I was talking about who, you know, she was very sick and she didn't want to be very sick. So to, to not look for it was, you can understand, she wouldn't keep pushing because they were telling her what she wanted to hear. You're fine. And, you know, she, the last thing she said to me was always push, always, always, always ask questions. Because at the end of the day, nobody else has got it. It's yours. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was a lovely story. And yeah. Yeah, I really, it just, yeah, it's just a nudge to pay attention to ourselves and to treat ourselves well and to trust in ourselves too. Yeah, I think trusting yourself is really, really important lesson to learn. Mm. Oh, sorry, my brain just went off like, oh, if you trust in yourself, how does that come into what you choose to eat or what you think you want to eat? <laughs> but that's a whole other conversation. It's also being honest with yourself is the other <laughs> thing. Because <laughs> I think deep down we all know that what the right thing is. We do. Thank you so much, Donna. Thank you so much. It was great to chat with you. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you're notified when a new episode is posted and rate and review this podcast and share it with your friends, please. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you're leaving with some great ideas that can make a difference in your everyday life. 
Until next time.